and welcome to the 15th episode of Tomorrow Never Knows, the podcast on history, women, gender, feminism and everything else. Uh, I'm Emma London. I'm Charlotte Lydia Riley. And today we're going to be talking about uh, women who write. Yes. In comparison to the last episode, which was how we write. Yes, and you know, we are women, so I suppose uh, there's a nice sort of thematic continuation of the last episode there's definitely an overlap although a lot of the previous episodes the previous episode if anyone hasn't heard it yet is about how we try not to write mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely <laughs> procrastination as an important uh, stage in the writing process definitely um yeah so today we thought we'd talk about um some of the specific issues facing women in the publishing industry some of the ways in which publishing uh, particularly, maybe particularly thinking about uh, fiction is kind of gendered, uh, and then we were going to talk a little bit about some of our favourite books and some of the things that we like reading. Do you have any all-time favourite books? I have, yes, I do. I have like two or three. I have a couple of books that I read over and over and over again, that like two twice a year maybe, um, and and a couple of books that I read when I'm like ill or miserable or that sort of thing. Um, so I have read every year since I was about 13, every time I'm feeling like ill or under the weather, I've read Nancy Mitford's uh, In Pursuit of Love and Love in a Cold Climate, Mm. which my mum gave me when I was a teenager. I have a very, very battered copy of it. Um, I don't know why I find it so comforting, actually. But I read that all of the time. Do you have? Is it like a page turner? It kind of is. I mean, obviously, I know the story pretty well now. So um, they're they're books that you've sort of semi, you know, for people who haven't read any Nancy Mitford, it's semi semi autobiographical book books about her um, upbringing as part of a kind of mad group of aristocrats um, with lots and lots of children who will diverge radically across their politics. There's Unity Mitford who tried to kill herself when Britain went to war with Germany because she was such a Nazi sympathiser. There's Diana, who married Oswald Mosley. She wasn't Mosley. Nazi, wasn't she? She wasn't yeah. just a sympathiser. Oh, yeah, I mean, a Nazi <laughs> and a Nazi sympathiser. Uh, Diana, who uh, who married Oswald Mosley and was interred um, during the yeah, war. Yeah, the leader of the British yes. fascist party. Um, but then Nancy is uh, very much more on the left. The Decker, one of the other sisters, who's very on the left, who's, who had a very good career with a, a journalist, um, mm. Jessica Mitford. Um, so I don't know. I don't know why I find them so so comforting. I think I think I used to like them because they were they sort of started when the girls were teenagers, um, and then they end up with them being adults, and they're romances. Yeah. So I don't know. Do you? I have... think you're not alone in that. I think I know quite a lot. I've never actually read anything by any Mitford. So I mm. think uh, I think maybe a book with some of their letters that yeah. I found on my grandmother's shelves. There's quite a sort of a cottage industry within the family. So Jessica Mitford wrote a book called Ons and Rebels, which is her kind of telling the story from her perspective. And she's the she's the sister who went on to be a journalist. Nancy wrote quite a few books, some of which were more autobiographical than others. Mm. Um, and then there's books about the sisters and books about their letters and things like that. It's quite a lot that you can read about them yeah. if you're so inclined. And then you can go on pilgrimages to places they've lived. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, what is it, the uh, former Duchess of mm-hmm. The Dowager <laughs> Duchess of Devonshire. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, I have a few books. I've actually recently started to reread the, the stuff I say is my all-time favourite list, mm-hmm. or the stuff that's on my all-time favourite list. Um, has It includes two books I've already mentioned on this podcast. So mm-hmm. it's The Remains of the Day by Kazuo Ishiguro. Mm-hmm 
which I don't think I have read for maybe five years or something, mm-hmm. but it's still held up then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I recently, when I was listening to his Nobel Prize lecture mm. a few months ago, I realised that he wrote it very near to where I live. Because oh. he wrote it within view of the Crystal Palace telly tower. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> so I now feel like I, I should just write a really good novel. Yes, of um, course. <laughs> the other one is um, Tony Morrison's The Blue Eye, which mm-hmm. I mentioned in the previous episode. Yeah. Um, and both of those um, I first read when I was in school. So they were mm. part of stuff that I had to do for exams. Mm-hmm. So I read and read and read them over yeah. the space of two years. Um the other, the third book that I always used to say was A God of Small Things mm. by Aradati Roy. Mm-hmm. But I reread that last year and I don't like it as much as I used to. It's funny <laughs> how sometimes you read a book at a particular moment in time and it's the book you needed to read and it speaks to you really closely. And, yeah. then, and then sometimes you reread it and it really holds up. Like every time I reread the Nancy Mitford books, then I, I still really love them. Yeah. And sometimes you reread stuff. I am, um, so I have. Uh, books that I had to read at school that I hated. For my A-levels, we did... Um, well, we had to do Enduring Love by Ian McEwan, which is my all-time least favourite book, I think. The book I hate most. And it's not just because I studied it, it's also because I hate Ian McEwan novels, and I think they're terrible, and I don't, I don't particularly like Ian McEwan. But the studying it didn't help. But then the next year, we did The Handmaid's Tale and Beloved by Toni Morrison. Oh, yeah. We compared them as images of motherhood and women, and the sort of thing you have to do in your A-levels. Yeah. Um, and I... Still, I still own the copies of those books that I used um, as a sixth form student, and um, I love them and I reread them periodically. The other book I, I mean, I have I have kind of authors I go back to. So Laurie Colwyn, who is not particularly famous in Britain, I think, but who wrote a series of novels. Um, she died very young of breast cancer, so she wrote a series of novels, and she also wrote two um, cookbooks. Mm. Um, which are kind of cookbooks with recipes but lots of stories in them as well called home cooking and more home cooking but the novels are all like relatively wealthy people in the upper east side of manhattan think about their feelings and occasionally have affairs everything always turns out okay um (laughs) no one is ever particularly traumatized or miserable it's all they always mostly follow women um the women have rich interior lives but somehow are never like actually too upset I, I can't explain why I love them so much, but I really love them. I really, really like them. And I, again, I read them in kind of times of crisis. And the other book I read all the time and I thrust on people and buy, I've bought for so many um, women, is Heartburn by Nora Ephron. Oh, yeah. And actually, I thought of her when, when I described Nancy Mitford's book as semi-autobiographical. I thought of her because Heartburn is a semi-autobiographical novel about the breakdown of Nora Ephron's second marriage when her husband, who was one of the Watergate journalists, left her when she was eight months pregnant with their second child for uh, sort of a woman who is not very sympathetically described, as you might imagine. <laughs> um, and she says in the introduction to Heartburn that novels by men are never described as thinly autobiographical, mm. that novels by men are always assumed to be kind of full of great truths and, you know, kind of meaningful questions, and, and that novels by women, you know, and loads of novels by men. Philip Roth minds his own life. For yeah. books, but that novels by women are always condemned to be semi-autobiographical and uh, Sophie Collins in Who is Mary Sue which I think I recommended a couple of podcasts ago as being a good a good book of sort of poetry um, she has a, a poem about that where she says that 
women's novels are always assumed to be autobiographical as if the highest praise for a female writer is that you've just about managed to describe things that have actually happened to you (laughs) whereas men are always assumed to be inventive and imaginative and to be able to actually make things up I find this so interesting because isn't it aren't we meant to be the opposite in Mm -hmm. real life isn't that how the general gender stereotype goes that women are the emotional sort of fantasists and yeah. men are rational <laughs> clear cut rational and mm-hmm. can't yeah. uh, empathize absolutely and i mean you know clearly why does that change when it's on paper i don't know it's really strange isn't it i don't know if it's because for men writing is assumed like for fiction writing for men is assumed to be something that they're doing like it's an active thing yeah whereas for women it's kind of a passive thing that you're just kind of committing to paper stuff that's happened to you whereas men are like going out and thinking about things and writing them down and inventing new worlds and it's the same thing about um like the idea of the like the great american novel or whatever right it's mm. always a it's always a man it's always male novelist like jonathan yeah. franson or whatever it's supposed to jonathan franson's 500 page books are supposed to capture something specific and universal about the american spirit but jennifer egan is sort of just capturing women's inner lives yes exactly or tony morrison or you know any of the female writers in america yeah um the other, the other author I've discovered really recently, actually, is Barbara Trapido. Have you read any of her no. stuff? So she's interesting. So she was born in South Africa, and one of her novels is explicitly semi-autobiographical, and it's about the apartheid state. Um, but I was talking to someone on uh, Twitter about her recently, another historian. I recommended her books. She wrote this really brilliant book called Brother of a More Famous Jack which starts with amusing about the sorts of things men writing in the acknowledgements of their academic books. Oh. And it finishes with the, with the same idea at the end of the novel. And I recommended her to someone who said, oh yes, like her husband was my PhD supervisor's PhD supervisor or something. That, like, <laughs> she has some sort of academic connection, I think. So. But her, which might explain why she's so good at capturing... Yeah, the oddities of academic life but her her books which often talk in detail about South Africa under apartheid are really good I think it's a really good thing to do as well to, to try to read fiction set in various uh, historical moments mm. I suppose we were I taught a module at Queen Mary this year about um, decolonizing Africa and mm-hmm. post-colonial history in Africa and um, the, the students were set Antils of the Savannah mm. by Chinua Achiba to read for the last seminar. Quite a lot of them hadn't actually managed to read the whole book. I saw a couple of them read, like, furiously turning pages. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, I think maybe, actually thinking of it, uh, having a whole book to read for your last seminar on a module is maybe not the greatest thing. They should possibly be part of some sort of assessment in order to actually force force them into oh, that's it. It's, sad, it's only about 200 pages long but yeah. you know they had 15,000 deadlines that yeah, week that's true and I, um, uh, if we know students we know that they don't do things well in advance yes but true. I think it's really good because it gives mm. it sort of it does have historical purpose to read something that yep. portrays the eras that we sit and look at the kind of dry numbers and stuff in archives yeah, absolutely. and I found trying to get into township culture in South Africa, which is, you know, impossible for me to do mm-hmm. um, as a white northern woman with extreme privilege, um, in reading, and particularly the 80s, 70s mm-hmm. and 80s, when they were very volatile, um, reading fiction set 
in mm. townships by authors who live and work in townships mm-hmm. was actually really it was the best way in yeah 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 I love using fiction for teaching and I'm I'm trying to start using it more for research as well but I love using it for teaching I used to teach a special subject uh, at York called border crossings um, which I actually inherited from a historian called Liz Butner um, and the course started with Jane Eyre and it finished with Dr No oh. um, the Bond book and so it didn't they were the two novels we actually no we actually read um as well at one point we did um migration to britain and we read um sam selton's lonely londoners and colin mcginnis um colin mcginnis's um work on kind of jamaican migration caribbean migration to london as well okay but the jane eyre and then dr no was brilliant so we started with jane eyre because it was a course particularly about imperial culture in britain Mm. So reading books written by British novelists in which they either like intentionally or often unintentionally reflected imperial themes was really useful. They functioned as a primary source to show how British people couldn't write about Britain and the world without writing about empire. Oh, yeah. And like Jane Eyre, you know, the Edward Said analysis focuses on Mansfield Park and this idea that Mansfield Park is, is sustained by money from the colonies. But Jane Eyre has all of these different imperial which mm. you know, not, not least that um, Rochester's wife has has was found in the Caribbean and has been brought back and it's often kind of intimated that it's her Caribbean connection that makes her into this mad woman. Mm. Uh, and then some of my students who had read Jane Eyre already read The White Sock SOC by Jean Rees, which rewrites that relationship and rewrites that, mm. that marriage. The funny thing about doing Jane Eyre is that... So it was a, course, it was a module that was almost entirely female students. I only ever had one or two. Of course. <laughs> Empire cultures. I always had one or two boys out of a group of 18. Mm. And so a lot of the, some of them had read the book at school. Some It's one of the things you can do at GCSE. And it was really funny talking to the female students in particular, the male students as well. But some of them had read Jane Eyre when they were 15 and had always read Rochester as this very romantic hero. And I didn't read the book until I came to teach it. So I read it for the first time at 20 seven or something mm. and I was like oh god he's so manipulative you know this is so terrible this is not it's not a happy ending that they end up together this is awful and the students who read the book for the course felt the same way and the students who'd read it as teenagers still kind of clung to this idea that Rochester was this wonderful romantic hero it was worth it all yeah. along he was worth it <laughs> which is really funny which had we we had very very interesting although not strictly relevant to the question of imperial culture discussions about whether Rochester was a romantic hero or a villain <laughs> And then Dr. No was fun to read at the end, and we watched the film as well, and we talked about kind of empire cultures. Mm. But I'm trying, like, I would like to do this more in my research work as well. I think there's sometimes a tendency among political historians to assume that people who use cultural sources are doing so because there aren't political sources available, right? Mm. That it's like it's a way into a story you can't access through political material. And I think actually thinking about fiction. And like drama and stuff as well as a way of thinking about themes, like as as alternate and as useful sources as political sources is a good thing. Yeah, I sort of feel like it's correspondence from mm. a particular moment. That, yeah. that is very difficult for us to get. I mean, we're always talking about the the um, problem of working out what the average person mm-hmm. thought or felt, and I think it's really interesting to look at what the average person would have read, mm-hmm. um, and how you know from what newspapers portray to actual yeah. kind of romantic fiction or whatever which is 
maybe what a lot of people write. Yeah, absolutely. Or read. I am um, when we taught doc- when I taught Doctor No, my students read uh, the New Statesman review of it when it was published, which is uh, called Sex, Sadism, and Snobbery, <laughs> and they hated it. Like they really <laughs> hated it. As you might be able to tell from the title of the review, it's such a brilliant book review. It's excoriating, like how awful Bond is and how sexist he is and how racist the book is and how ter- and how brand obsessed. There, there is a bit in Doctor No which is a bit like. Um, the is it American Psycho which has the chapter which is just lots of 1980s brands Mm. and it kind of there's a bit in Doctor No that is very similar that just kind of goes through all of the different things that Bond uses and this this New Statesman review is absolutely hilarious but again for the students it added an extra dimension to reading this historical novel because they read the novel and thought, oh, okay, you know, people. This is obviously people were sympathetic to this or enjoyed yeah. this, and then and they not, read this not book. Not challenging the, yeah. the main concepts, yeah, exactly. And then they read this book review, which was like, yeah, no, Bond's really racist and sexist. In the 1960s, someone was saying this. Mm. It's like, I mean, I used to live in in Borough in mm-hmm. London, which is the Charles Dickens centre of the world, I think, mm-hmm. um, just opposite the Marshalsea Prison, which is now just a wall. Um, and there's, you know, there's this really romantic idea about Dickens being a sort of eyewitness to Victorian London and squalor, which obviously he is, but he was problematic even in his own era Mm -hmm. and time and had criticism. He was obviously very loved by many, Mm -hmm. but also quite a uh, special man. He was incredibly racist. And and when people these days say, oh, but everyone was racist back then, then, you know, it's... You can look at the reviews and interviews and mm. stories about Dickens that are circulated yeah. in the press and see that that's actually not the case. Yeah, but he had criticism <laughs> that time. I sh- must confess, actually, that most of my knowledge about Dickens' kind of life as a writer comes from the Horrible History song about Dickens. Oh, really? Uh, which is done in the style of the Smiths and is hilarious and, like, one of my favourite... I, I really like Horrible History's songs, um, but the Dickens one is particularly good, actually. <laughs> I have to confess, I haven't actually read a lot of Dickens. I've mostly seen the various BBC mm-hmm. and ITV dramas. I think. And of course the Muppets. Like, the Muppets Christmas Carol is possibly... <laughs> it's my, my, my heaviest exposure to Dickens, is the Muppets Christmas Carol. Because <laughs> I tried to read Dickens on a couple of occasions, and it's just not my style. And I think this is, if, I, if we go back to why I don't mm-hmm. rate um, The God of Small Things as much as I used to, I think it's just a bit too wordy for mm-hmm, me it's mm-hmm. a bit too complex I really enjoyed that when I was about 18 yeah. 19 and I, I suppose I, that was what I sort of aspired to if I wanted to be a writer yeah but it doesn't it doesn't work for me anymore I like them much more clear-cut mm-hmm. straightforward how much how many of the the kind of the cla- well, well first of all what are the classics in Sweden like if it, like what's the equivalent of that sort of canon of literature like say Dickens or Bronte or something like that what would what would that be well we have 500,000 Nobel Prize laureates (laughs) um almost I think Ireland might have more than we do but um we so there's Selma Lagerlöf who Mm -hmm. is actually a woman who was a Mm. lesbian woman in a lesbian relationship although that was under uh, wraps till about 20 years ago Mm -hmm. um who wrote a series of novels that depict countryside life mm-hmm. in various forms of privilege and, well, not so privileged. One of my favourite books by her is Corsier, Son of Portugalian, mm-hmm. which is about a man who's, who's a poor man who gets a daughter late in life, his only child, and he's mm-hmm. sort of obsessed with her and tries to do everything for her. Mm-hmm. 
she rebels by going to um, the big city where she and when she returns it's fairly obvious that she's become a sex worker mm. and he goes mad mm-hmm. and uh, believes that he's the emperor and she's the princess and stuff and it's it's heartbreaking but it's a very good depiction it's slightly I suppose magic realism in a way mm-hmm. but it's also a very good depiction of kind of Swedish hardship in the mm. countryside people who work in the forests and when's that when's that well, when, she, when was she writing and when she was that? writing at the turn of the century mm-hmm. pretty much I think she might have died in the 40s mm-hmm. um, but yeah she's sort of late I suppose she kind of mirrors the Victorian era in a way I was going to say because like people in the countryside differing levels of privilege complicated with attitudes to sex like oh, it's like oh she's the Swedish Thomas Hardy yeah like, that's yeah <laughs> although not because she's a woman yeah exactly which is quite a big quite a big which, difference a woman who had her own uh, secrets I mm-hmm. suppose which might not have been very secret where she was living um, she cohabited with at least one mm-hmm. female friend <laughs> with whom she's shared intimate letters mm-hmm. um I think she has a different spin on it. She doesn't actually put blame on women, mm. but I, which I sort of feel like Thomas Hardy was yeah. quite big into. I think so at different points. I mean, I've read. We also have the thing about Swedish classics. I mean, there's a whole host of them that 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 come from the 19th century. Mm-hmm. But the very big and significant movement in Sweden is a kind of modernist working class literature mm. that was mm-hmm. very big. In the interwar era, and okay. particularly like the 1940s mm-hmm. and 50s, there's also several Nobel laureates among mm-hmm. them, like uh, Harry Martinson, mm-hmm. who wrote sort of depictions of poverty and um, people who actually had working class backgrounds mm-hmm. who started publishing novels mm-hmm. and became very sort of celebrated and mm-hmm. well read. And it's actually, there's a whole, it's Arbeta uh, Klasslitatur in Swedish, so it's. <laughs> Or arbetarlitatur, which is just means work is literature, mm-hmm. and there's always so in Sweden now when people there's always you know that it's like the great American novel, but yeah. in Sweden people are always looking for the next wave of the working class right. who can who can depict yeah. everyday life as people live it in suburbs, mm-hmm. industrialized cities and stuff. So um, it kind of comes in waves, doesn't it? That's interesting because I think in Britain often we get hung up. And certainly kind of people like Michael Gove, when he was thinking about the curriculum, I mean, like my kind of, you know, a lot of people have, have thought about Michael Gove's attempts to in, uh, intervene in the history curriculum. And he wanted everyone to read our island story and to learn this kind of lesson of Britain being this unique and tolerant space and, and all of the rest mm. of it. But he also, I think, made interventions where he wanted people to read more of the classics. And he felt that like it was terrible that school children were reading modern literature and not the classics in mm. inverted commas and I have a feeling I'm, I'm sure I remember that one of the things he said people should have read was Middlemarch like I've read Middlemarch I read Middlemarch as an undergraduate student it's about uh, like a thousand pages long <laughs> it's not that good or interesting like I yes it's by George Eliot and it's very interesting that she's a woman who's writing a man's name and yes it's very important for understanding a particular moment in British political history you know it's, it's about voting reform yeah but I think ultimately, if I first of all, if I was going to direct students towards the classics, I wouldn't direct them towards Middlemarch. Actually, I maybe There's would so send much... them towards Jane Eyre or something because yeah. I think Jane Eyre's very readable. You've only got so much time. If yes, you're going to go exactly. through a thousand words, a thousand pages, you're going to have to cut something else out completely. Exactly, and and there's also the thing. I mean, there's a very snobbish attitude in Britain where things like Austen, for example, who clearly 
should you know Pride and Prejudice should be among this canon of classics mm. but Pride and Prejudice has been kind of recast as essentially a rom-com mm. which of course it is I mean that's what it is it's a it's a book written by a woman for a female audience about romance but that doesn't make it less worthy of classic status than Dickens or or Thomas Hardy or Thomas Hardy and like if you pretty were, much what if you would prefer <laughs> to read something that's not unremitting bleakness and misery yeah then you know you can go for something a bit lighter but then also you know lots of that you, you know, there's also lots of interesting literature in Britain that comes out of later periods, which just isn't revered in the same space. Mm. So, I mean, you could read Orwell, for example. Yeah. Um, you could, you know, read a female author. Perhaps you could read possibly if you can think of one. I mean, there's so few of them. Exactly. And they only do. write about their private little lives. That's true. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if you want to read some sort of domestic fiction, you know, exactly. you could read something by a woman. But you know, I don't. I think. We, a lot, a lot of people talking about classics in Britain is very bound up, obviously, with ideas about class and education and yeah. and what that means. I found it really interesting when I first moved here because I have a bilingual education. Mm-hmm. Um, the last three years of which were to ninety five percent in. I mean, apart from my Swedish lessons, mm-hmm. it was all in English. Um, well, I suppose I had French and French as well, but you know, <laughs> it doesn't really count. Because we certainly didn't read very advanced literature. It was Le Petit Prince and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But um, when I moved here, people were like shocked that someone who is quite well read and well educated hadn't read like lots of the British classics. Mm-hmm. And I was like, but I actually come from a different country where we have other classics. Yes. So I hadn't read Thomas Hardy. I actually don't know if I have read Thomas Hardy still. Certainly seen another few like films I've and stuff. I've read a lot of his poetry and I've read Jude the Obscure and I think also... I might have started Tess of the Durbervilles. I think I might have read Tess of the Durbervilles but they all kind of blend in. I find it hard to remember which one's Tess of the Durbervilles and which one's Jude the Obscure. I, you know, I don't really, you know, it's not... when, you, when you're not in sort of immersed in the culture the way I am now but mm-hmm. when I was freshly off the boat or plane... Um, I, you know, it's all just a bit weird that people yeah. get so obsessed. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, well, don't you understand that there are other languages and other canons that you read? And there's only so much time <laughs> a person has to read classics mm-hmm. that, you know, we have to do them in several languages. But I think maybe there's some pretty terrible stats about translation mm-hmm. into English. And I yeah. know that it's improving. Mm-hmm. There was one of the big papers had an article, I think, a few weeks ago. I might try to find out to see, which is like something like 1% of the books sold in Britain are translated. Mm -hmm. But that's more than it used to be. Yes. And I think that's noticeable. I think particularly maybe there's like the uh, crime section in bookshops tends to be very well stocked with yeah. foreign authors and people i mean there's key kind of things so like elena ferrant for example yes right? yeah which, she's which was, probably you know she must be responsible for a huge number of that like yeah. steve larson and elena ferrant right yeah must be, must be a huge proportion of the translated yeah. literature that british people have read and actually the elena ferrant ones it, that's interesting because it it is kind of literary fiction for women, yeah, which is translated, which which requires a lot of decisions at different points in the publishing chain that that's worth translating and worth offering. Yeah, to a British and that it can't audience. be replicated because I have, yeah. I am a translator. I have translated. Well, I'm sort of still working on this one novel, <laughs> Swedish novel, which I kind of been working on maybe for like nine years, but I haven't actually touched it for about eight of those years because. Mm-hmm 
the agents really struggle to find a publisher for it. Mm. It's an extraordinarily good book Mm -hmm. and it's unique. You won't be able to find Mm -hmm. an English language equivalent. Mm -hmm. Um, But all the publishers just go, well, you know, Mm -hmm. we could just spend the money on someone else. And I feel that's quite a big shame, but I also feel like it's maybe something that uh, female authors struggle with mm. more and I think Elena Ferrante is a really good mm-hmm. example of how women's work is treated on covers yeah. of books oh yeah absolutely because they are not good I mean have they changed I think maybe I've seen so recent covers that I are have better of them, the copies I have of them have very much like I think one of them has like I've read, so I've only read the first of them I I've have, bought the I, first but I've never read it I own all of the series <laughs> We must be the, the only two women in their early 30s in Britain who oh, have not actually read all read of this. No, I've read the first one. Okay. Um, and I think... So I also have a copy of a, a, a shorter novel by her, and that's in the, the, the more recent covers, and that's... Um, Charlotte's now going to get them. <laughs> the, the most, so the most recent ones... So yeah. the, the older... The versions that I have of them are very kind of... They look like the sort of romance novels that my nana used to read. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're terrible so the covers. Cover, I'm really is, sorry. I'm being really rude to someone's hard work here. But they're, like, the sort front, of painted on photos in a way. Yeah, like the front cover of, with the story of a new name. So I've got all four of them. They're all different pastel colours. And the front cover of this one is, like, two people who are holding each other and looking off into the distance from the back. And it just, it looks exactly like, like, my nana used to read a lot of books like Penny to Cross the Mersey. Yeah. And these these are kind of, like, slightly, um, like, kind of, um, what what do we call it now? Those kind of books that, like, people write that are memoirs of terrible things that happen to them. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. It's... I can't remember what they're called. But you, they're, these are kind of novels. Misery lit. Yeah, misery lit. So my nanny used to read a lot of kind of romance novels that were also basically misery lit. Like a lot of people, husbands dying or people like having illegitimate children. Of... <laughs> yes, you know, lots and lots and lots and lots of illegitimate children, lots of shame. Kind of sounds a little bit like Angela's Ashes, but that's by a man. That's author, by a man so. and is taken very seriously, right? <laughs> but that, that's the Elena front, front covers remind me of those, right? And then the more recent one, I have a copy of The Days of Abandonment, which is still published by Europa, but has a much more interesting front cover. Yeah. It's, apart from anything else, it's a darker colour. The book is dark purple rather than this pastel shade. Yeah. And it has a kind of a woman looking into a mirror. It's a print of a um, a print of a photograph painting. Um, I'm still not sure that I particularly like the font on them. No, but it's a, it's even just having the non-pastel colour makes it look yeah. like a serious book. The first Eliana Ferrante, which is the one I have, is I don't know if it's a wedding or if it's like a first communion or something, but it's it's definitely a woman in white and a veil. Uh, that's the sound of books tumbling down a bookshelf. <laughs> but yes, uh, no, so yeah, that must a be wedding. a wedding. It's, it's the, and it's like so they're on some. It's obviously Naples because it's Vesuvius in the background. Yeah, they're on a. They're they're sort of there. It's and you know there is a wedding towards in the, book. the sea and stuff. And, and there's three little bridesmaids in pink dresses. It's such a romance book. Yeah, book. it looks like something you would buy in a supermarket for like a pound fifty. And the thing is, like, I don't. I don't want to imply either that I think that there's a hierarchy of books that means that Ferrante is necessarily better than those or that books marketed no. that women are bad things, but it's just, it's so it at odds with the content the, yeah. of the book. <laughs> yeah. Like, I love a good bit of chiclet. I have lots of um, kind of, I, I really like, I mean, 
you know, chicklet is such a problematic and difficult term, but I, I love Marion Keys. Yeah, novels. I was going to say, I used to read Marion Keys She's maybe 15 years ago. Brilliant and clever, and they're always funny. I like um, Vara McFarlane, Sam Binney, you know, the women who yeah. write really good, interesting kind of kind of comic, often often kind of comic fiction about families There's and women. There's a very good um, chicklet <laughs> novel about my former place of work, which is a very house, mm. which I'll try to dig out, I yeah. don't know. But yeah, a friend I... of mine actually bought it for me because I worked in the building where it's set. Exactly, like I love it. So one of the Vyra McFarlane books is about a historian who works at UCL. It's brilliant. <laughs> like I read the whole thing deciding that it's, it's clearly based on me. Yeah. Um, she's also described repeatedly as extremely beautiful, so of course I yeah. sort of read it preening. But um, I don't think, I mean, the, looking at this Elena Ferranti cover, that's not something that would have ever gone on a Marion Keys no, cover. No, that's the thing. Even, like, actually British chiclet covers are better and better now. Like, yeah. They're more graphic, they're more interesting. They have their own style, and this just sort of feels like... Do you know what we should do? We should look up what, what they look like in the Italian original version. Yes, we can put a link on them. Because I think there is an added problem with the covers... Which I yeah. think feeds into the whole men don't read fiction by women. Yeah. Which yeah. is actually a big problem. And I don't really know, don't really know what we'd do about them. I mean, the most, most men that I know <laughs> tend not to read fiction mm-hmm. in general. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? That like, I do know some men who read fiction, but fiction is... Like the majority of fiction readers are women. That's backed up by statistics. Yeah. Right? That's backed up, backed up by statistics. That makes me sound like such a humanities person. But like, <laughs> there is data that shows that most fiction is is read by women. Yeah. And yet, female authors are underrepresented, and it that always feels really problematic, basically. Yeah. But also that yeah, men don't read that as much fiction, and if they do read fiction, they read fiction by men. Yeah. Um, and you can see this in all sorts. So of what do we have? Tom Wolfe. J.G. Yeah. Ballard. Yeah, who died recently that was the death of the American, Great American... Was it oh, that was Tom Wolfe, yeah. yeah. Um, the death of the Great American novelist, Jonathan Franzen, who yeah. I've said before. Like, and, and then in Britain, what, Ian McEwan, Sebastian Falks. Yeah. Um, Martin he, Amos. He, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> These men who write serious books about, like, the human condition. Like, what, what Martin McEwan's... Most, uh, Ian McEwan's... Martin McEwan, I've invented, like, the worst novelist <laughs> Ian McEwan's most recent book was a book from the perspective of a fetus, which dealt with like issues around social justice warriors. Like it just sounds horrifically bad. And you think I really want to read Saturday. I but I haven't. Yeah. But I think it'd be so interesting from the perspective of someone who actually was on that march. But Mm -hmm. I hear people are quite not not liking it very much. I mean, Atonement is a great film. seen it i was so put off by having to read enduring love yeah. um, very recently there was a very funny story where ian McEwan said that his book was being misinterpreted on the a-level syllabus because he'd helped his son with his a-level coursework oh, yeah. and he'd only got to see yeah. um which firstly like yeah i wrote my a-level coursework saying i thought ian McEwan was a massive misogynistic creep and i got an a so i'm assuming that he probably didn't tell his son to say that but also you know <laughs> great you know the death of the author is a thing, right? We yeah. don't necessarily have to listen to what authors think they're saying uh, for their books to be interpreted. I think that, yeah, that is interesting. I think the fact... We were all talking a little bit about it last week or last in the last episode, the fact that I'm, I'm very happy to just hand over my work to whoever mm-hmm. reads it and I don't really, you know, necessarily care about their opinion. I think that must be very difficult for 
works of fiction, fiction yeah. and the sort of nerve-wracking because that is the worlds you invent yourself mm-hmm. I read the Paris Review interview with Joan Didion the other day mm-hmm. and she talks about the difference between writing non-fiction and writing fiction and mm-hmm. the fact that in non-fiction you kind of have the work done for you because you have the facts mm-hmm. and the figures and the research whereas fiction you have to create everything mm-hmm. yourself mm-hmm. there's nothing that you can build on which is interesting seeing as a lot of people assume that everything women write is about their own lives and in the case of Joan Didion it has been for yeah. bits bits of it bits of it have been yeah it's um but what are we going to do about the covers well this is the thing there was a really interesting article in Lit Hub, on Lit Hub a couple of uh, years ago by a woman called Jennifer Hoyer who's a book designer and she said this is a problem even from her perspective because she's a female book designer so even the books she's asked to design for is really gendered so she's only she's she's asked to design mostly for first of all for books by women um and she says she's always asked for things that are feminine photo based and fresh and she says mm. that she doesn't she basically doesn't use photography um you know and like the type of handwriting like exactly. the lettering that looks a little bit like someone's written with lipstick on a mirror yes i feel that's a that's a thing <laughs> exactly she says why would i be great for this cover it's a good chance it's because the book is aimed at a female audience and i'm a female designer um, and she says, you know, the way that the genre is kind of constructed as being aimed at a female audience as a, and it's a symptom of sexism in publishing, that there's this idea that you can kind of throw away these very light covers and that they should be marketed in a certain way to women in this kind of very frothy surface way. Mm. Um, and that women aren't, you know, we're kind of not expected to have a, like a, an aesthetic appreciation of anything more challenging or interesting as a front cover for a book. It's all these yeah. kind of like pastels and light things and everything. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm, it, I'm trying to think of a good cover. I really like the... Sadie Smith has got good covers. Mm, She's got brilliant excellent covers. covers. I also saw... Oh, now I can't remember her name. Oh, Diana Evans? Maybe. I'm pretty sure it's Diana Evans. Mm-hmm. I'll definitely check and edits if I need to um and I think it's called Ordinary Lives Mm. it's a very recent book it's published a few months ago Mm -hmm. um it's named after the John Legend song so it's either Ordinary Lives or Ordinary People I'm pretty sure it's one of them yeah yeah um and it's set in South London and it again features the famous Mm. Crystal Palace Tower that (laughs) that I see from the end of my street um, but it also has um, West African fabrics and stuff mm, and kind that's of... Cool. And it's it's a very striking cover. It's sort of shouts at you from afar. And I feel that's something that's quite rare. Yeah, I really yeah. like the covers of Jennifer Egan's novels. Yeah. Um, because, apart from anything else, because uh, quite a few of them have been... So I'm thinking of a series of, like... They reissued her early ones and then put her later novels into this series, so they're all very similar. So like they they're all together on my bookshelf and they yeah. all have the same font and the same branding, which is important, I think. From a, you know, books need to be branded. They need to be kind of identifiable. Is that the style also... that they started with? Is it from the Goon Squad? Yeah, but I think. Or is it more recent? I th- it is from the Goon Squad, but I think maybe the very early ones because Look at Me was actually I think was earlier than the Goon Squad, and then they reissued it into oh, okay. that style. So I yeah. think Goon Squad was, Squad was the first one that had that branding and they reissued some of the later ones mm. but they're just really nice stark covers they have really kind of strong fonts on them they have interesting you know they often do have like a picture of a woman on the front because the main character in her novels is normally female but they're interesting kind of stylized drawings and things it's not pastels mm. it's not 
they're really good kind of meaty looking books I think have you ever read a book that or carried a book in your bag that you've been unwilling to pull out of your bag on public transport so I haven't apart from when I'm doing kind of really academic stuff and I'm carrying around big books that say like genocide on the front of them oh yeah I have um, a friend I have a friend who studies um at one of the London fashion schools mm-hmm. and she was working on a project about male uniform and mm-hmm. had to borrow lots of books about Nazi uniforms yes. and she was like I can't I can't actually, actually show these in public the one Philip Roth I actually enjoyed because most Philip Roth novels are just him like old men inexplicably having affairs with very young Swedish undergraduate students but mm. the one book I enjoyed by him is A Plot Against America and that has a massive swastika oh, yes. on the front of the cover that is a very good it's cover. really good it's great but I was reading it on a beach in France once and was very aware that like from a distance I was just reading a book with in a huge swastika on the front surely that's Which illegal you, I mean presumably in Germany it has a different cover I have um I still haven't read it I'm a bit worried about reading it I know that there's someone in it who I've had contact with but mm-hmm. the book um, by Orsna Seyestad, the Norwegian journalist and author mm-hmm. who wrote the book Salam Kabul. Mm-hmm. She's recently, I think it's maybe four or five years ago, she wrote a book about um, the man who killed lots of, murdered lots of young people yeah. in Oslo and uh, mm-hmm. Udaya in 2011. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm never going to say his name, so, mm-hmm. but you'll have to imagine it. I'm sure you know who it is. Mm-hmm. And that's got a picture of him on the front cover. Mm. Um, and I've, <laughs> I've covered it in parcel tape. Mm. So I don't have to see him. (laughs) And I also feel like having been sort of randomly... This is something, obviously, that has affected a lot of Norwegians. So it's not not strange that if you meet a Norwegian who's in their early 20s that they have some sort of connection Mm -hmm. to the massacre. Um, But I just don't want to sit in public with a book that might actually yeah, be yeah. very traumatic for other people to see it's, I sort of feel a bit traumatised by it so yeah you don't want to and be going I'm at, at least three arms length mm-hmm. from, from yeah. the events from an entirely different kind of angle um, I saw a book being recommended on Twitter recently called The Pink Hotel by Anna Stoddard and it's a brilliant book that I really enjoyed but it's called The Pink Hotel it's like a slightly oversized paperback like it's slightly bigger than it's annoying on the shelf it doesn't like an airport size yeah it's an airport sized paperback and it has like a pink hotel on the front and it's called the pink hotel and (laughs) the first few times I saw it being recommended I did like entirely unreasonably and snobbishly and it's very like internalized sexism of me I just kind of think yeah no that's not for me and then when I was carrying it around I felt very like it's this big book and it's pink and and it's actually it's brilliant it's really really good I would really recommend it it's about a girl whose um mother had her when she was very young and then kind of immediately ran away and the girl finds out her mother has died so she goes to LA to try and find her Mm. and the pink hotel is this hotel on I think on the sunset strip and it's this you know it's a really really interesting and really well written book um by a female author with a female protagonist it's great but just the the cover and the the title I, I was just really put off it for ages I also feel like maybe that's if, if we have um, reservations about carrying certain books in public maybe that's one of the reasons men tend not mm. to read fiction by women maybe because if we're I'm not saying it's a good reason but I'm saying it's maybe understandable that you don't want to necessarily be sat in public with something yeah that screams that's true. my I, little pony I mean, when I in think... reality you're like Millwall. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> I mean, I think I would be less 
anxious about carrying this around if I was a man, to be honest. Like, I think the thing I didn't so like... Far, yeah. The thing I didn't like about it was I was being really snobby and I thought it made it Because you're like being perceived was, as a certain yeah, kind, kind exactly. of woman reader. Which is just yeah. silly and I just have to get over it. But it does say something about the way that that book's been marketed. We talked about this in a much earlier episode, I think, the fact that I, d- I watch a lot of stupid TV, mm-hmm. like a lot of really idiotic... Yes. Like brainwash relaxing tv mm-hmm. i used to watch eastenders i've kind of stopped mm-hmm. but that sort of thing whereas i prefer to read serious fiction <laughs> i don't have mm-hmm. time for things that aren't gonna engage me but i have friends who are the complete opposite mm-hmm. who have like very serious uh, intellectual jobs but who just read the worst kind of pirate fiction you could think of yeah for relaxing i mean i read everything i read I mean, I, I said on, on our New Year's resolution um, podcast, I was trying to read more fiction or more non-work books this year, which is it working. It is. It's working really well. I'm ticking them off. Um, literally just having a list. So I have a list on the notes app on my phone and I write down the book. Every time I start a book, I write down the author in the book. Do you read one book at a time? No. So I sometimes I do. If I'm really, really into a book, then I because I read very quickly. Mm. If I am really into a book, I can, you know, I can read a novel in a day. Yeah. But, you know, also, I don't, I don't have small children. I <laughs> might be doing this on a Saturday when I don't have very much work to do or whatever. You know, I can sit down and spend the day reading. That's an enormous luxury. Um, so sometimes I, you know, by virtue of that, kind of I'm reading one thing at a time. But normally I'm not. Um, yeah. At least partly as well because I spend a lot of time on the tube and on trains and things. So I also spend a lot of time flicking through my Kindle mm. and reading bits bits of things depending on what takes my fancy. And then I'll probably have a novel in my bag and I might have one by my bed. And and so just writing it down when I start it and then kind of that has actually kind of made me slightly less promiscuous in my reading habits in that if I see I've got like five books started I will kind of finish one of them rather than starting a new one do you abandon stuff if it's not good enough I haven't for ages actually in fact the last book I read that I really hated I still read to the end Hmm. um and I don't I don't know why really I think that one I thought maybe it would redeem itself to me (laughs) Um, (laughs) on the final page yeah and it didn't um (laughs) and I always think yeah you should just stop you know you should just stop if you get bored with stuff there's definitely stuff I've kind of not consciously abandoned but just kind of put down somewhere and not really picked up again do you abandon things I abandon things but I tend not to abandon them forever so I have like hundreds of books Mm -hmm. um on this very big bookshelf that we've collected in our living room Mm -hmm. uh, that have various stuff as bookmarks all sorts of like business cards and loyalty cards Mm -hmm. for various I could have so many free coffees if I just gathered them all together but I had a conversation with um, a woman in South Africa on Twitter um, a few months ago I think it was at the beginning of the year she's called Puleng Hopper Mm -hmm. and she because she reads one at a time like Mm. religiously reads one and finishes it mm-hmm. and that must be such a relief in a way. <laughs> like, I quite like that sort of project reading mm. thing of ticking things off I've just yeah. never really been capable of doing it do, do, I have like a stack of maybe five books on my bedside table mm-hmm. um, none of which I'm kind of reading right mm-hmm. now some of them I've never even started there are yeah. other books that I carry around yeah I have stuff I put next to the bed because it feels like it's bedtime stuff but also you know I so the things I'm putting on the list on my phone are only new books it's only stuff 
I'm starting because I'm trying to read more new books. Mm. Um, I'm not counting stuff that I'm rereading, and I'm often rereading one of my comfort. So I'm, I'm rereading um, uh, Laurie Colwyn at the moment, alongside the other things that I'm reading and finishing. But it is nice to look at a list and see that you've ticked things off. And I only need that level of motivation. I know people who are much more. Um, I have a friend who has a, has literally like a spreadsheet, mm-hmm. um, that they keep all of the books that they've read on it. Partly because he's much better than me, I think, at like giving stuff away once he's read it. Whereas I tend to hoard things that I liked. Yeah. And I think that makes a lot of sense actually, in a way, to to kind of record that you've read something somewhere permanent if you're going to give it away. Yeah. Because you know. I tried to do a massive clear out maybe 10 years ago so I listed mm-hmm. all of the books I had and then decided which ones I could kind of pass on and I think out of like 300 books there were about two that I was like I'm never going to read these again I did loads when we moved house two years ago I sent hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books to the charity shop and then when we moved to our new flat a lot of my books went up into the attic because we don't have very many bookcases in our new flat and I Actually, this was entirely accidental, but I managed to mostly unpack a box which was 50% books I hadn't read yet and 50% my favourites. Oh, excellent. And so I've basically ended up with all of the books down here. And now, actually, a lot of the books that are in the attic I probably could get rid of because I couldn't really tell you what's... Every so often I think, oh, I really want to read X that's in the attic and I need Mm. to go and find it. But, like, it's very rarely happens and I probably could go through and audit them. I have shelves and shelves in my office at Southampton as well, so all of my history books... Well, all of my history books were in Southampton, but are now not because I'm on my research leave here. So mm. I've brought some of them here, and I've got library books now here as well. Um, I used to hoard Swedish books because obviously that's mm-hmm. the only way to get them is to like yeah. buy. And Swedish paperbacks tend to be smaller than the British format and cheaper. Mm. So you basically get a book for like six pounds or seven pounds mm-hmm. or something, um, and. That used to be how I read them, but then I discovered <laughs> that you can borrow books on my local my local Swedish library. You can borrow mm-hmm. ebooks from oh, them cool. and read on like an iPad or That's a Kindle good. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So all of a sudden, like mm-hmm. it was just paper saving and space saving. But I still hoard an enormous amount of English books, mm-hmm. and lots of them I haven't even opened yet. Do you have a poem for us? I do have a poem. Now, my poem's not so much about um, books, it's about writing. Um, and it's uh, a, book, a poem by a woman called uh, Rachel Wetstian. Uh, Wetstian? Uh, I'm not quite sure how you pronounce her last name. Um, from a book called Sakura Park. Um, so she is a poet who... Um, she died very young. Um, I think she killed herself, actually. But she she died in her early 40s. But she wrote this really beautiful poem called Love and Work, which is one of my favourite po- poems about women writing. So it starts, in an uncurtained room across the way, a woman in a tight dress paints her lips a deeper red and sizes up her hips for signs of ounces gained since yesterday. She has a thoughtful and a clever face, but she is also smart enough to know the truth. However large the brain may grow, the lashes and the earrings must keep pace. And it's a book about being a woman in literature or in academia or in writing and about the disconnect between um, the way in which men can use that to kind of get partners and to pursue romance and women so it says um the world's most famous scholars wander down the most appalling alleyways in town a blonde and busty airhead on each arm there is an inner motor known as lust that makes a man of learning walk a mile to gratify his raging senses whilst the woman he can talk to gathers dust um but she finishes so she's she's, you know in the poem she thinks that maybe i'm gonna have a barren dance card and a teeming brain a crowded bookcase and an empty bed and that maybe she should compromise and and read and write less to have love 
And then she says at the end, the girl who gets up from her desk and dumbs her discourse down has never seen the flight of wide-eyed starlings from their shabby cage. The fool whose love is truest is the one who knows a lover's work is never done. I'll call you when I've finished one more page. So at the end of the poem, she decides it's not worth it and she's not going to dumb herself down and she's going to continue writing and reading. Um, and it's probably my favourite poem of all time. Yeah, it's so great. I'm very happy that I've been able to share it on the podcast. Uh, what are we recommending this week? We're recommending books that we haven't yet read. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> books on how to read lists. This is because this is, earlier this year we, we recommended books that we had started and hadn't finished. Yes. I recommended Swing Time by Sadie Smith, which is really good. I have finished it. Yeah. What did you recommend? I recommended Sheila Hetty, I think. How Should a Person Be by Sheila Hetty, which I finished, which is brilliant. Yeah. So, so we have a good... Good track record good in track recommending record good with books. This. So what are you recommending? Uh, I am recommending a non-fiction book uh, by an author called Rebecca Solnit, who I love and who um, is a non-fiction writer who has kind of recently... She wrote Men Explain Things to me. Mm. Um, and she has kind of... Which is like a trendsetter in... Yeah, It's absolutely. become its own genre of books. Exactly, and is kind of dealing with the patriarchy. And she also... You know, she's made a number of interventions in the Me Too debate. But this is a book called Hollow City, The Siege of San Francisco and the Crisis of American Urbanism. And I bought it because I'm interested in urban history, but also because it's a really interesting melding of urban history written by Solna and photographs. Yeah. And it's partly like a photo document of San Francisco as a city that is like becoming aggressively gentrified and losing its heart. Yeah. So I'm excited to read it. I'm looking forward to it. It looks really good. What are you recommending? I'm recommending Rachel Cusk's Outline, mm. which is from 2014. It's the first, it's apparently a trilogy, mm-hmm. but it's the first of those, um, that, that set of novels. And it's, Rachel Cusk is quite controversial, I gather, from reading reviews and mm-hmm. stuff. So she's written quite brutally about motherhood and divorce mm-hmm. and it's semi-autobiographical so um people feel either that she's gone that she's lost her mind and shouldn't be revealing this much it's funny how women often get the sort of mad mm-hmm. hysterical hysterical treatment when they can't when mm-hmm. they they overshare mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. tmi <laughs> i think um dolly alderton has a has a column in the New Statesman from last week or the week before yes, where so she writes about how men are sort of seen as modern and yeah. and uh, sympathetic when they share, whereas yeah. women are sort of still oozing liquid everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Emily, Emily Gould, who has written various things about this and has another brilliant newsletter, we recommended newsletters a little while ago, but um, Emily Gould has written about this as well. This sort of, She was one of the very early confessional... Mm. sort of she's probably she's probably just a millennial and this kind of confessional millennial female writing yeah and she always pushed very aggressively for this idea that this was legitimate and that if she was a man people wouldn't have a have a problem with it that Mm. it was legitimate to write in detail about your own life yeah as as a form of writing and i think rachel cusk is really interesting i read an article an interview with her a few weeks ago where she said it's an older article but um she was saying how having written semi-autobiographically she all of a sudden felt like fiction wasn't enough mm-hmm. that it she sort of had that call of the kinder squad thing mm-hmm. <laughs> where you have to you have to draw on your own life and I think that's problematic perhaps but it's it's interesting mm. and her books have recently this trilogy has recently been reissued with new covers gorgeous covers absolutely brilliant covers mm-hmm. um 
So maybe we'll, what we'll do on the website where we keep our footnotes, we'll, we'll post an earlier version and the current version, and yes. you can see the difference between the two. Absolutely. But it's about a woman who leads a writing course in Athens, mm-hmm. and you know is is coming to Greece after having divorced, and she's mm-hmm. got kids, and she's trying to work out her life there, mm-hmm. I suppose. So if we're ever going to start a Tomorrow Never Knows <laughs> book club, I suppose this is the moment. Are we the new Richard and Judy, do you think? Oh, we could be, I think, absolutely. Um, or Oprah. Oprah has a book club, right? Oh, yeah. That's something to aspire to. Yeah, definitely. So if anyone wants to re- co-read these books with us, <laughs> let us know. Feel free and uh, keep in touch. But so this is the end of this episode. Yep. So next time we're going to be talking... We're going to return to the really serious, hardcore stuff, and we're mm-hmm. going to be talking about Windrush. Yes, British citizenship, identity, belonging, all of those big questions, and drawing on some of the themes from our, from our Imperial Nostalgia podcast a few episodes ago. You can find us on the internet at TNKPod on Twitter. You can find uh, Emma and me on Twitter as well on our personal accounts. You can find us online at tomorrowneverknowspod.com exactly um, and you can get in touch on email or on twitter and we'd love to hear from you so yes we've had a few hi. questions from i was going to say readers but that's wishful thinking questions from listeners mm-hmm. in the past so if anyone has any suggestions or themes or questions or things you want us to talk about then just get in touch we'd love to hear from you but until next time bye bye